Kia ora, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to Amarin's Podcast, episode 361. Today is Friday, March 11, 2022. Things happen, don't they? I learned quite some time ago that there's almost no sense in delaying any podcast episode because of things changing, because they're always changing. And it wasn't actually all that long after my previous episode, when I was talking about why we didn't have the sort of big protest stuff that other countries have had, that we got that same sort of big protest stuff that other countries have had. And I'll talk about a, a bit about that today. It's a sort of a negative topic, though, really. But it, it it's all over, so it doesn't matter now. <laughs> but first, I'm going to talk about what I sa- said I would talk about this time, and that is where we're at, where I'm at, with the solar power situation. And I think that the, sh- the short answer to that is I'm I'm quite happy now. And that takes some explaining. And to do that, you first have to think about how we can measure whether or not a solar power system is worth it. And there are two different measures, two main measures that are used when people try to decide if it's if it's worth the investment. The most common one that most people seem to rely on is does the home have a zero bill for electricity every month or even constantly running in credit? And the other way of measuring success is how much overall is the savings on power? Now, those are two very different things. The first one relies on uh, being in a climate or a latitude where uh, there's a lot of there are a number of sunshine quite a lot of sunshine hours per day and 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 sunny days per year because that, that's what maximizes production it also requires battery backup such as the the tesla power wall and there there are others everready makes one now and other companies but those are very very expensive and they have enormous implications for the environment not just the mining of the lithium, but also when the batteries reach the end of their usable life, they have to be recycled somehow. But there's no recycling facilities for batteries in New Zealand as of right now. There uh, there will be eventually. And that means that they become toxic waste. And there's there's nowhere that you can just dump them. And it is possible theoretically to reuse them, at least for a time, but not in a power wall type situation. And so when you when you look at the enormous environmental costs of mining the lithium and producing the batteries, and then also the environmental costs of, of having these stockpiles of used lithium batteries, and you, lithium batteries have a habit of catching fire and or exploding, so you don't want them just hanging around in a warehouse somewhere. It, it becomes really iffy whether or not that's a good idea. So if you don't have battery backup to run your electricity during the night, that means you have to depend on the, the the electricity company to provide you with power for the night. And if that's the case, then you need to have as much sunshine, as many sunshine hours as possible in order to offset what you're going to buy at night. And that's the situation I'm in, because the power that I buy from the electricity company costs me more than what they pay me for the power that I send to them. So I don't remember off the top of my head, I should have looked this up, how much they pay me and how much I pay them. But let's just say for the sake of argument that it's 30 cents per kilowatt hour that I pay them and they pay me 20. Now, those are not the real figures. Don't quote those because that's not what it actually is. And maybe next time I'll think to look it up before I start talking about it. 
The point, though, is that it makes far more sense for me to use the electricity that I generate myself, because it's free, rather than send it off to the power company. Because at night, when I buy the power back, I'm paying more than, they're, than they paid me for the power I sent them in the daytime, if you can follow that. So in other words, mathematically and financially, it makes more sense for me to use up my own power. And so that's what I try to do. And that gets to the third way you can look at the financial benefit of a solar electricity system. Are you using up all of the power you generate? Now, the inverter that I have, it, it tracks how much power I'm generating, how much I'm sending to the electricity company, how much I'm using. And if I'm using all of the power that I'm, if my house, rather, is powered entirely by the solar array, then it, it tells me I am 100% self-sufficient. So my self-sufficiency percentage relies on how much of my household's power is coming from the solar power cells up on the roof. And if all of my household power is coming from that, I'm self-sufficient. If it's not, then it might be 90 or 80 or 70% self-sufficient, depending on the day and the weather and all that sort of stuff. And of course, at night, it's 0% self-sufficient. So what I've tried to do, and I've talked about this before, is I've always tried to do my power-hungry things, electricity-hungry things in the daytime, like running the dryer if I need to, or, or the washing machine, or the dishwasher, or I might bake, although I don't... <laughs> I don't usually bake because if I bake things, I'd eat them. Although I do make bread. I make bread in my bread maker um, once every week or 10 days or whatever, whenever I need it. And um, so that uses power. Not a huge amount, but it does use it. I even try to iron in the daytime. I uh, When I, I mow my lawns in the day, obviously, as everybody else does. But it's a battery-powered lawnmower, so I charge up the battery when I'm done while I can get free power to do that. I even power up small rechargeable batteries like AA or AAA during the day when I've got free electricity. Basically, any electricity that I can use in the daytime, I use. I have two heat pumps, one in the master bedroom and one in the living area, lounge, kitchen, diner, that that both run 24-7. And during the daytime, it's obviously completely free. So then the question becomes, do I have enough left over at the end of the day, uh, from my use in the day, to offset how much I buy at night? And the answer to that is, it depends. <laughs> if it's a dark, dark, cloudy day, or especially in the winter, then no, it probably won't. If it's the summertime where the sun is bright and shining for hours and hours and hours, then it probably will. And I've got two concrete examples of how that works. In January of this year, my electricity bill was $8.95. And I mean, in, in, a, in a typical month, the the electricity bill could be anywhere from, we'll just call it an average of $175, because in the worst of winter, it's much higher, and in the summer, it's generally lower. And and I don't really know why that is. I think it's because all the lighting is running, because the, the heat comes from the heat pumps as well, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but we'll just leave that aside for now. Let's say it's around $175 a month without the solar power cells. So this past January, I spent $8.95, which is a rather significant savings, I think you'll agree. <laughs> My, they, the power company gave me a credit of $87.56 that month, which means that I must have generated a hell of a lot more power than that because I used my power as I generated it. And that was a really good month. In February, however, the very next month, my bill was $54.15. 
and my credit was down to $56.80. What's the difference? Sunshine. February was a very dark and rainy month for some reason, or much of it was anyway. It's a short month, so there weren't that many sunshiny days that could make up for the dark and rainy ones. We had like two weeks, I think, of rainy weather nearly every day. And of course, it wouldn't rain at night. It only rained in the daytime when I needed, <laughs> needed the sunshine. But anyway, um, so it was a very dark and rainy month. And what that means is that I didn't generate nearly as much power as I could have in that month. And so I ended up having to pay more. Now, in a couple of months, I'm going to hit my first year with full solar power array or whatever you call it, with the system in, since the system was installed. And then I'll be able to do a much better analysis of how it has worked out over that entire 12-month period, because that includes, obviously, all the seasons of the year. And so I'll come back to this topic at that time. But the important thing to know for now is that in the summertime, I've got it made. I'm getting, I'm generating far more electricity than I can use, and I'm getting good credits. And even in February, which was a dark and rainy month, which sounds like a bad novel, but anyway, it was a dark and rainy month. Even then, my bill was was fifty four dollars and fifteen cents, which is less than many other months would be. So, swings and roundabouts in in the summertime, in sunny weather, even in wintertime. It does really well on at night. Obviously, it doesn't do anything. And on dark and rainy days, it doesn't do anything. Or it doesn't do as much, I should say. It does some. And the problem that is that in the winter months, the days are short and the sun angle is low. And so that, even, that shortens the amount of direct sunshine I get even on a sunny day because the sun sets lower faster. And you know, overall, it means that it's, I don't get nearly as much money in the wintertime as I do in the summertime. But like I said, I'm coming up on one full year, one, 12 full months with the solar electricity system. And I'll talk about that more once I get there. But like I said at the very beginning, the, the, the headline message is that I am satisfied with the system. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to talk about in this episode and have wanted for a long time. The other issue is that we did have what I call loon, loons, goons, and cartoons occupying the grounds of Parliament for about three weeks. And it, it began not that long after my last episode, actually. They decided that they were going to have a, a convoy, a trucker's convoy to Parliament to protest, officially to protest mandates, uh, vaccine mandates for certain workers. Now, there are two kinds of mandates. One is government mandated, which included things like police, military, medical personnel, teachers, border workers, those sorts of people. Basically, the people that are, are employed by the New Zealand government in critical roles, public-facing roles, that sort of thing. But there are a lot of companies that instituted um, vaccine mandates as well, supermarket chains, for instance, um, and some other companies. And But that's out of the government's control because they haven't mandated that companies do that. Nevertheless, it all got lumped together in the minds of these protesters, as it tends to, and they decided they were going to have this trucker convoy, and they were inspired by the Canadian shenanigans, of course. Unfortunately for them, there wasn't a single trucker that joined their their convoy, and so they they arrived in Wellington. There's just utes and cars and campers and things, and they started setting up a camp in on the grounds of Parliament. It's illegal to to do that naturally, and they didn't care. 
And of course they didn't. And the reason I call them loons, goons, and cartoons is because it was a really, really motley crew of people. Some of them were people who were generally upset about mandates. They, they themselves may have been fully vaccinated, or they may have been in support of other people getting vaccinated, but they themselves didn't for whatever reason. And they were upset that people were losing their jobs because they, they refused to get vaccinated for whatever reason. Now, there's something to be said about that right up front. That was a topic worth debating in a sensible, calm, rational way. Because there, there were questions about whether or not the mandates made sense anymore in an era, era of um, Omicron when anybody and everybody can, can get infected with it. And also whether or not um, certain uh, professions should requ require vaccination. Those are th things that people could reasonably debate reasonably. These people were not willing to debate reasonably, and they were not reasonable. They demanded that they be removed, and they weren't going to go until they were. No, well, that was never going to happen. They were never going to achieve their goal, which says to me that they didn't have a clue how to protest, <laughs> because that's not how you do a protest. You don't go about trying to piss off everybody around you to, to um, try to win a goal that is unwinnable. So they were there, and they it, it, was, it was just a disaster from the start, because they had the loons who were anti-vax loons. They had loons who, who said that everyone who was vaccinated, their blood turned to this um, blackish goo, which is, of course, impossible. There were people there who said wearing masks reduces your blood oxygen to 40%, which is impossible. And if that actually happened, we would have doctors and surgeons all over the world collapsing instantly all the time, wouldn't we? And there were also um, cartoons. There were some people there who were wearing aluminum foil hats on their heads because they said that the government was using uh, radio frequencies as a weapon to try to, um, I don't know, make them sick or whatever. And by the way, some of them did start to get sick and they they decided, see, that proves that the government is using radio waves when in fact they were getting sick from COVID. Be that as it may. <laughs> the third contingent or grouping or whatever were the goons and they were people there who were looking for trouble. Some of them were violent racists and neo-fascists some of them were just people who like violence for whatever reason, and they caused a lot of trouble. There are there's some schools near Parliament grounds, and they went out and they verbally harassed the students for wearing masks, which was required in schools. If they saw um, an adult walking near the Parliament grounds wearing a mask, they would harass them. And in, in at least one incident I have heard of, credibly, they tore the mask off somebody's face. And... That was only verbal, mostly verbal harassment. They also did other things that were despicable. They painted a swastika on the base of the statue for um, Dick Seddon who, Seddon, who was one of the prime ministers of New Zealand, and he was often called King Dick because he wanted to build an empire that New Zealand would control. A whole bunch of stuff. I could tell you stories about him, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is you don't go around spraying swastikas on statues. And... On the grounds of Parliament, there's a cenotaph, which is a memorial obelisk, basically, for those who died in World War One and Two, and they set up a toilet block near there. And why they ever thought that was a good idea is beyond me. They kept saying that they were all about love, and they would wear um, signs. I mean, they had signs of love is the answer, and they kept pushing this one love thing, you know, from the the reggae song and so on. And they would abuse members of the press or politicians that called for Jacinda Ardern to be executed and, and members of parliament. 
Um, they actually had a noose hanging from a tree at one point, which may sound familiar to anyone who remembers January 6th in the U.S. And they, um, they, the, the, the funniest thing I thought, saw, I was watching one of the live feeds of the, the protests and so on, and um, somebody was, a media person I think was being talked to or something, and behind them there was this woman carrying this sign that said, love is the answer. And she said to, to the media reporter, you're going to be hung. And I thought, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> so there were all of the, this mixture of loons, goons, and cartoons on Parliament ground. And they had absolute contempt for everything and everyone around them. Nothing, they, none of the rules applied to them, apparently. And they, some of the campers had um, uh, like chemical toilets that you dump out in a, in a waste station. They're especially special places you're supposed to dump them. And instead of doing that, they dumped them down the storm sewers. And the storm sewers there drained directly into Wellington Harbor. So the Wellington Regional Council had to issue a warning telling people not to go near the water because it was polluted with human waste. And they they were just really gross. And I there were numerous reports about how about the stench that was coming out of their camp because of lack of hygiene, the uh, sewage, and all sorts of disgusting things. And this was going on and on and on. And eventually, over time, the more sensible people left, and the people who were left behind were, were just the, the um, loons and goons and cartoons. None of the sensible people were left. And it, it, got, it got very difficult. Wellingtonians had had a guts full of these people. They wanted them to go home, and they wouldn't go home. And they kept the... the Occupiers kept saying that they were uh, talking for the, they were speaking for the people of New Zealand, even though hardly anybody actually supported them. And there's one thing that has bothered me about the whole thing, and still does. No one in the news media ever once reported exactly how many people really did lose their jobs because of vaccine mandates. How many are we talking about? Are we talking about ten? Are we talking about ten thousand? No idea. And yet the whole reasons, in quote marks, behind the occupation was about vaccine mandates and how they were costing people their lives, their livelihoods, rather. And I don't know that it's true. I don't know that it's real. How how can I know? I'm not going to take their word for it, certainly, but I don't, I don't have the, the means to find it out. That's a failing, in this case, it's a failing of the New Zealand news media. They should have looked into it and found out what the truth is, but they didn't for whatever reason. At the same time, certain people didn't help matters any. The Speaker of Parliament, who is actually the one who's legally responsible for the grounds of Parliament, turned on the sprinklers at one point and um, got people wet and stuff, thinking that they would get wet, especially because storms were coming that weekend, and he thought if they were really wet and miserable, they'd go home. Well, that didn't work. It only pissed them off, naturally. He put up speakers and was blasting loud music, including apparently Barry Manilow, and also the song from Titanic over and over and over again. And uh, that didn't work either. <laughs> but they they said that um, the government was, was using psyops against them, apparently unaware of what that actually means. But anyway, <laughs> so he didn't help matters any. He kind of made it worse for a while. And uh, finally, he stopped or was asked to stop or something. I don't know. Anyway, he did. And... The, the police so slowly started tightening the, started restricting them more. They put in these giant blocks of cement 
to keep them keep new cars from joining them because they were blocking streets all around the area, making it impossible for buses to get through or ambulances or whatever. And um, so vehicles would leave as people went back to go home to go to work and so on, but no new cars could park in those spaces. Well, the, a lot of these protesters, probably the goon brigade, came out and pushed some of these these blocks out of the way so more cars could get in. So then the police put more blocks in the way and heavier ones. And then finally they they started trying to restrict it a bit more. All of a sudden, a uh, toilet block with flushing toilets appeared on the scene. And they were stealing the water from somewhere, probably, I'm guessing, from either a nearby building or the city, but probably a nearby building. And they were dumping directly into the storm sewers. Then this right-wing nut job sent in a, a porter cabin type thing that had showers in it and hot water. And I saw one of the protest people, I mean, occupying people, bragging about how it uses solar power to heat the water and self-sufficient and all that, none of which was actually true. It, it may have had solar hot water, I don't know, but it also had a gas heater. And apparently that's what they were using, or they were using electricity that they'd stolen from some building. The water was stolen from the law school, nearby law school, as I recall, for Victoria University. And again, the water was being dumped directly down into the storm drains. So that, that was the last straw, pretty much. But the police also said later that they'd noticed that the, I don't know, flavor of the occupiers had changed remarkably over just a few days and had become much more hardcore violent people than had been there previously. So they went in and they started, they brought in giant forklift type things to lift up some of these parked cars, put them, put them on a flatbed and take them away. And they demolished, they, they picked up the shower thingy and building and moved that. And um, the guy who owns it or somebody claimed that it was damaged. And I'm like... So why should I care? You put it there illegally. You weren't entitled to do it. They were stealing water. They were dumping um, wastewater illegally. Why should I care? Why should anybody care? It's your loss. And uh, they also demolished the, the toilet block and took all that away too. And that's when they started getting really violent, as you might imagine. <laughs> they started throwing things at police. They started um, spraying fire extinguishers at them, you know, with the, the foggy kind. I don't know exactly what they thought that was going to accomplish. But what I noticed is that when it started, all of a sudden they appeared and they were wearing goggles on their faces. Um, so they clearly knew that violence was going to happen eventually, and they, they had prepared for, for engaging in violence. And some of them were wearing, without a shred of irony, they were wearing the exact same face masks that medical professionals use to protect them as part of their PPE against um, catching COVID from a patient. So it got worse and worse. They were throwing, they were picking up uh, cobblestones from the, the ground and bricks and throwing them at police. Police kept pushing them back and back. And then some of the protesters started uh, burning tents. And they claim that they didn't do that. They claim that it was agent provocateurs from the police. They claim it was Antifa. Now, where have you heard all of this before? And the reason, of course, is that Everything that was behind this comes from the USA. They were aping the same sort of bullshit that the radical right in the U.S. Uh, has been saying for two years, basically, and um, that they also used to talk about the Canadian brouhaha. And it, it doesn't belong in New Zealand. It's not of New Zealand. The original idea for the convoy didn't start as an imitation of what happened in Canada. It originally started with a bunch of neo-fascists and, and violent racists talking about coming to Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, God, God forbid, going to Wellington 
and seizing the prime minister and executing her and asking for other people to come and join them. Now, this is a common thing among them because the day before, sorry, the day after, or maybe it was even the day I recorded the last episode, somewhere around there, I didn't know this at the time, but there was a violent extremist who had decided that he was going to go to a place that wouldn't let people in without um, showing a vaccine pass and do a citizen's arrest, which you can't do under those circumstances because they're upholding the law, not not, um, breaking the law. And he was asking for armed people to come and join him. Now, apparently it didn't happen, but it's the same kind of thing that they're all doing. And it comes from people in the U.S. who talk about the sovereign citizen movement. It's basically a form of uh, far-right anarchism. That's a hard word to say. Where basically the person is the, the sole authority of everything and government can't tell them what to do about anything at any time. None of which is actually true, obviously, because laws are what what preserves order in society. It's how we all get along. It's how we know where the boundaries are, all that sort of thing. If, if it was really true that no government had the authority to tell people what to do, then there'd be no reason why you couldn't go out and murder whoever you wanted. You could just steal whatever you wanted from anybody anywhere. All of these things. And so they were pushing this sort of stuff. And they were putting things on the car, the the cars that were parked in those streets to block them. They're putting these signs on there saying that that they had to consent to having the car touched. And if they didn't give the consent, they were going to fine the police $200,000, I think it was, or something like that. All of which was based on bullshit. There was no such authority to do that. They all kept claiming violations of weird laws that don't exist or they completely don't understand what they're talking about. And I'm no lawyer, and I knew that they were wrong. <laughs> um, they kept saying that the, that the Nuremberg Trials too had begun or were about to begin, depending on which loon you were talking to, and that the, the prime minister and the leaders of the New Zealand government would all be on trial by this international court because of supposed crimes or some sort or other. And all of that was bullshit, too. There is no such thing as a Nuremberg II. And there, it hasn't started and it's not going to start. It's all bullshit. And it's being pushed by these right-wing media channels that come out of America, Telegram, and I've forgotten the others. The festivities at Parliament Grounds were being live-streamed by a bunch of far-right um, people. And one of them had was was streaming over a uh, streaming network that is run by Steve Bannon, who was one of the major influencers for the guy who lost the 2020 presidential election in the U.S. And um, there was far-right money from the U.S. that was somehow being channeled to some of these organizers. Not enough, clearly, because they weren't able to, to resist the police. But... Yeah, so it was a terrible thing. They started fires that the fire department had to come and put out, and they didn't want to be put in the middle of this situation because they're not police. All What they do is they put fires out and they save lives. That's what their job is. It's not to deal with people throwing bricks at them or worse. So the police kept pushing them back and pushing them back and pushing them back, and finally they were pushed off of, of parliament grounds altogether. And this is after they're ripping up cobblestones in the street and throwing them at, at the cops. And... Eventually, they finally did disperse. They tried to go to a marae in Wainuimata, which is north of Wellington. And the it turns out, though, that that marae had been a vaccination center. And they the whole community in the area closed ranks around the marae and said, you are not going to enter these marae. You're not welcome here. And part of that is because in Wellington, 
these people had gone through the back entrance to the the main marae for the the iwi, the tribe for that particular area, and which you're not allowed to do. You have to go through the front, and you have to be welcomed on the onto the marae. And they also broke windows in the offices of the the iwi because they didn't agree with them. They are what's called tangata whenua, the people of the land. It's their land that all this was happening on, and they had these radicals who were saying, oh, no, 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 we have the authority here, and we're trespassing parliament and the government to get, and the police to get off our land. Well, it's not their land. They have, they can't do that. So the the local iwi, the actual people of that area, were being disrespected, and they were being treated with contempt by these occupiers. And so when the occupiers started moving north and they were headed for this marae, the community wouldn't have it. So they stopped them from going there and then they eventually um, spread out and dissipated and so on. Now, here's the thing. The lesson, there's a lot of lessons in this. One is that the police got it wrong when this all started. They didn't understand what they were dealing with. They thought that they were angry people and but they you could just negotiate with the leaders to come with a to come to a peaceful settlement. There were no leaders. It was it was leaderless. Because of that, there was no one to negotiate with. And it, it never got anywhere. And then these violent elements came in and just, just went downhill right away. The police probably should have cleared everything out immediately. Um, not when they first arrived, but on the weekend, because the numbers had plummeted. It would have been the perfect time to just move them all on before their camps got entrenched and before the violent backups got there. But they didn't. So that's one learning. The police have to be better about about actually understanding what they're dealing with. But the other thing is that there is an element of New Zealand which is anti-government, anti-reason, irrational, and buys in, is susceptible to far-right influence from, from here and abroad that is disaffected and willing to resort to violence to try to get what, whatever it is that they think that they want or what have you. That has to be dealt with. We have to be able to understand and find a way to reach the people who aren't gone already, who aren't too far into la-la land, we have to find a way to be able to reach these disaffected people who are scared, who probably who may have experienced some personal um, uh, difficulties because of COVID over the past two years, and who hasn't to some degree or other. And until we do, we're going to keep having this kind of thing happen. I don't, I don't know that any country on earth is at a point yet where they can quite figure out what to do. I mean, Germany has, and they've had a denazification program going on since the end of World War II, and they still have far-right loons and violent, violence-prone far-right loons. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how we deal with these people, but we have to find a way to try. Now, one last thing about that. Last time I talked about how there is this, this particular cult preacher who had been leading and pushing a lot of these protests. He was kind of pushed aside from the occupation because he he was too willing to talk. And uh, apparently that's that was one of the main reasons. So he was wasn't really much to be seen, but uh, he he's on bail for his previous protest stunts and uh, he wanted to change the terms of his bail so that he could go on on holiday. And the, the judge said no, <laughs> which I think is perfect. But that is where we stand. I, if I remember, I'm going to try to put a list of some various articles and things of interest, uh, links to those in the show notes. If you're interested in reading more about this, some of the stuff that happened, more of the background stuff from a New Zealand perspective, not from an um, overseas perspective, 
then um, check out the, the show notes to this episode because it will have links to relevant stuff. But that is it for today, and that's it for this week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. You can comment on this or any episode of the Emmons Podcast at emmonspodcast.com, where you can also leave a voice message. You can visit and comment on the Emmons Facebook page, or you can email me with or without a voice message at emmons at gmail.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Pride 48 Network and is produced and distributed under Creative Commons license. Complete details at the website. <laughs>